Even if you're in a job that on the surface isn't something that you love doing, it doesn't mean you can't infuse your passions into what you do. How can you use what you're passionate about and your superpower to help other people and to help other people win? Tell me a little bit about your philosophy about being an employee in a cube or an office and doing these sorts of things and, and unpack that a bit. Quality, quantity, and consistency. And you're right. I mean, Carson Hetty is a successful leader at an organization that any of us would be impressed by, the Microsoft Corporation. But there's something far more interesting about Carson. All of us, regardless of where we work, are seeking to improve, to innovate our work. We need better results. Carson was an eight-time CEO award winner at the Microsoft Corporation. He's also the number one social seller in their entire sales force as he focuses on healthcare solutions for their enterprise group. Carson's also an expert. Perfection is the child of time, as Bishop Joseph Hall once said, meaning that perfection is not something we just give up on. We should put it out there a few thousand years, give ourselves time, but still pursue it. Carson, his expertise has been codified, he's looked at it, he's organized it, he's brought it into methodologies, he's communicated it, all of which takes tremendous time above and beyond one's career. Did it pay off? Absolutely. I love the quote that Tory Burch once gave, if it doesn't scare you, you're probably not dreaming big enough. Carson Hetty dreams big. He's innovated tremendously, and he teaches us how to become an expert at our craft. In a moment, the great Carson Hetty. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs that unstick work and life. I'm Mark Cook, New York Times bestselling innovator. Each week I offer keynotes that engage thousands, and teams embed me weekly to unstick tech pivots, sales prospects, and ops constraints. We roll up our sleeves in small groups to create breakthroughs on top priorities for each individual, in person or via Zoom. Nine global studies of over two million successes fueled my 4,000 wins at top brands. I've shared rapid innovation in over 50 cities worldwide. Teams create revenue breakthroughs and clients see new profits. Thank you for listening and inspiring your breakthrough today. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hey, how are you? Doing okay. I read your bio and I thought I've got to get a hold of that guy. That's why I reached out to you. Um, cool. I haven't had a chance to dive into one of your books. I'm excited. I'll tell you, I, I sense, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, I remember in graduate school, we had to read the goal and it was Eli Goldratt, How to Relieve Constraints, How to Get Throughput. And he taught it in a fictional setting, but taught the real principles. And it kind of seems like that's what you're doing for sales. Do I have that wrong? Yeah, it's similar. Uh, basically created a fictional protagonist who is a seller um, who becomes a sales leader, but encounters the, the lessons that he writes about. So it's like a book within a book. Yeah. That's great. I also want to hear about you. I really want to see if there's something in your life that was pretty dang difficult and uh, that you had to get through it. So there's a couple. Um, okay. Actually, I'd say probably the one that comes to mind most is this one from a few years back, um, you know, where I had a dynamic with my leadership that, 
you know, I don't think we had the same way of looking at the business and um, had a tough year. You know, I didn't, it was my first year in this role and um, had a very challenging year. Didn't really have anyone showing me the ropes. And, um, you know, I had to bet big on a process that I knew would pay off, but I didn't really have the leash by which to uh, really truly see it come to fruition. And so had a tough year, but um, this person moved on and I got a new leader and um, I benefited greatly from some of the seeds that I'd planted a year prior. Long story short, maybe just had a gangbusters year and it just, it beget this path of, you know, to, to where I am now. But um, it was one of those situations I look back in hindsight, I was very glad I had it. I had to kind of take a step back and look at, okay, what, what are the what are the blockers types of things? But um, yeah, could definitely speak to that. Tell me a little bit about that early career and what you're talking about. Um, first, I mean, I, inex- I found myself inexplicably, um, unexpectedly looking for work several years ago. And um, I just, I thought that my resume at the time would get me in doors and it didn't. Um, you know, I was using, I didn't know how to look for a job, frankly. And I was, you know, using the old tried and true job boards, which, you know, my probability was probably one in a thousand. I didn't understand the numbers game element to it. Uh, didn't understand the branding. And I definitely didn't understand the networking. Um, these are things that, you know, in hindsight, I look back and if I could, you know, I always get asked like, hey, if I could talk to my younger self, I would have really doubled down on people and on network and understood the you know, the, the branding element, the personal brand element a lot better. Um, but uh, the book actually, my first book helped me find someone because my resume stood out because of the book. And that's how I got in the room to, for the interview and um, ended up landing this role. And it was less at the time than what I wanted to do. It was different. It wasn't of the same caliber than the role that I had left, but you know, I had to start somewhere. And as I mentioned to you before we jumped into this, um, you know, I made a relationship there that led me to another organization where I made a relationship that ultimately led me to Microsoft, which is where I am today. I've been here eight years. The other thing that attracted me is how many people follow you, and it's probably because of your books, but you're, I've, I've gone online and you're an expert marketer. I mean, it's one of those things, yes, I did write that book, my first one 12 years ago, and um, very serendipitous situation because it was, you know, I obviously haven't sold enough of it to retire, but uh, it kind of beget a relationship that led me into another role. And then I made a relationship there that led me into another role. And then I made a relationship there that led me to Microsoft. So I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Um, it kind of opened up a portal. Um, and it's been interesting too, because like I was always a believer in leveraging social to unlock new relationships that I didn't have um, and doing it at scale. So I became known even in my own company for prospecting with some of these like, you know, like LinkedIn and some of these other tools. And uh, so it just, it helped me from a brand perspective, but also in every job that I've ever been. Um, I was having a conversation about this earlier today. So I was talking to somebody who's really looking to build their brand Mm and um, kind of take a, a philosophy to market and I was like, you know, you, you just got to figure out what you, what is your, what are your mediums? What, what's your canvas going to look like? You know, I went out and formed a blog and I got on every social platform that I could, even though my teenager knows more about this stuff than I do. Right. So um, I just had to figure out where I like a stock portfolio. You got to diversify your portfolio and figure out where all you're going to be. Control the messaging, you know, obviously the quality of your message, quantity of outreaches and touches, and then uh, consistency of execution over time. You don't just create something and let it sit. You know, you've got to have some kind of rhythm and uh, it's paid off for me. I've got 300,000 social followers across all the platforms and, you know, a global reach. 
which is mind boggling to me. I mean, I'm just a small town kid from the Midwest, so I got to pinch myself every day, Mark. Normal people should become an expert at the job they're doing and not not just to carry that brand with them out into the world of social or YouTube or, or books or podcasts or being able to have a methodology, being able to have some research or some thought leadership uh, can really make you better at your day job, which benefits your employer as long as you can stay there, as long as they want to keep you there. If you're happy, you stay, right? And, and so there's nothing wrong with doing both. And I think most people think that it's just the entrepreneur, or the solopreneur that needs to do these things. And you're saying you, you, you wrote a book, but ultimately a couple steps later, it, it resulted in working in the healthcare industry for Microsoft. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your philosophy about being an employee in a cube or an office and doing these sorts of things and, and unpack that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the amazing thing, Mark, is that you can parlay your passions and your unique superpowers into wins for other people. And ultimately, you know, we're a relationships and resources world. You've got to figure out all the resources that are at your disposal. How can you package that up and uh, funnel that to the other people that you touch in the ecosystem, whether it's colleagues, customers, leadership, whatever it is, and deliver wins. Deliver wins for other people and you will win by proxy. Um, and that's the fascinating thing. Yeah, there were a few steps that led from where I was, but my experience was in telecommunications and advertising. On paper, there's zero reason why I would be successful at a company like Microsoft. But uh, what I ultimately found, I started building a community around what I was doing. I started building lists. I solved problems with resources that were readily available. And so, whereas I approach things very differently than anybody else that's ever done the roles that I've done, um, it worked because I like to call it a money ball approach. It was very data driven, but people centric. How could I, you know, really take the cues from the data, focus on the problems that existed, whether it was problems we had in contactability or problems that customers have and gearing everything at my disposal toward them. You know, I started building specific events or uh, leveraging tools to prospect and unlock conversations. Uh, but once you're at the dance, you got to stay at the dance. So you got to keep bringing value. And I just learned every resource that was at my disposal. I didn't have to be the smartest person in the room. I just needed to know who to bring into the room. And so by mastering that, I became known for it. I was able to drive more pipeline than anyone else years ago in this role in sales. And so people started asking, you know, how are you doing this? And then I became known for that. I was asked to train it and coach it. And then it grows and grows. And now it's global. Um, I was recognized this past year as the top social seller in all of Microsoft, which is incredible. I mean, I'm again, I'm from a small town in, in Midwest United States. There's really no reason why I, I should be able to be doing all these things. But it, it spoke volumes to what it could do for my personal brand, but also what it was able to do to deliver results. And um, that's what helped me tremendously. But different phases of your career will look very different from one another. My career today looks nothing like what I started out doing or what I thought that I would be doing. Um, and if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that vers versatility. You know, we, we're going to constantly reinvent ourselves to stay relevant. And um, that is what one superpower that we, we've got to learn. So if you, if you look back on that, I'm going to start orchestrating, being a quarterback. You're also documenting it with some of your writing and some of your social media. What comes first, what comes second, what comes third, et cetera. Tell, give us the blueprint on how to do what you've done in your work life. Yeah, I love that. And then I'm going to actually ask you a question as well, Mark, because I think that's key is 
when you identify that you're in one of these types of scenarios, it's so easy to get swept up in it and and to um, become mired in the um, you know mired in the misery, as I like to say. I always like to say monotony is better than misery. So I'd rather be bored than um, you know in a problematic scenario. But sometimes these things happen. You get in a slump, like you know in sports. And I think the key element is to be able to take a step back and take a holistic view of what's potentially broken in the process. What relationships do I need to be investing in? Um, what are the, you know, what are the, what's the data telling me? But you, you nailed it. Um, there's a foundation that's got to be built, but you also have, also have to journal and chronicle your progress. So I like to build a foundation of success. A lot of times I'll, I'll use spreadsheets. I'll map out, you know, where am I? Uh, what relationships, what are the key relationships that I need in order to achieve what mm -hmm. I am setting out to achieve? Um, I mean, that could be, you know, we just started a new year, right? So maybe I'm looking at into in December, what do I want to look back having achieved? Um, what deals do I want to get done this year? What are the strategic partnerships that I want to forge? Great. What relationships am I going to need to get there? What milestones are going to be critical between now and then? We've got to map that out. And ideally, we want to map that out with the other people that we're connecting with, right? I mean, that's a conversation that we've got to have with customers um, so that we're in lockstep. And we, we agree that this is a priority and that these are the milestones that need to transpire. You've got to go to your board. I've got to get resources this is how we're going to come together and it's all going to be poetry. Well, you, you've got to make sure you map those things out and you hold each other accountable. Um, but I, I do, I keep a journal file as well. Um, and it's, it's typically always open on my desktop and it's, you know, it might even just be a line, a bullet point that I'll add in a given day or week, just based on, you know, progress that was made or a contribution that, that I made. It's really helpful when you go back and you're able to look at that because it embodies some of the, um, the, the, the progress that you've made, uh, the investments that you're making in, in these various areas, but it keeps you honest. Um, you'll develop some of your own KPIs too. Like I like to call them the hustle stats since we're with these sports metaphors. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are the key components that I'm adding in? Um, and, and that's how you kind of chronicle it, you know, map it out, be very foundational, look at the relationships you have and the ones you don't have, where you need to invest, mm -hmm. what are kind of some of the plays that you need to run proverbially, like what, what do I need to do in order to kickstart this conversation? Um, you know, are there things that, you know, I kind of just go down my list every day too of non-negotiables, like what do I need to go down the list of every single day to, before I get caught up in the minutiae of today, what do I need to make sure that I do today to make sure I'm staying crisp to my 2022 goals or whatever that looks like and make sure that I execute on those. But I'm curious, Mark, because I know you have a lot of these types of conversations and you, know, yeah. you talk to a lot of people that are in various careers and varying steps of career. What would you say are the common themes? What are the common themes of people that are, you know, they've identified that, hey, I'm, I'm maybe in this pivot or, you know, whether it's something that I'm initiating or that's been initiated for me, and that sometimes happens too, what, what are the common steps that uh, people take to successfully emerge from these moments? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation with a client about this this morning. There's two very different types of research that point to the same principle. One is mine, which comes from the world of work. You know, I've investigated two million cases of work that, that ended up either being successful very poor outcomes or outcomes in between. Uh, the, the first set of studies was award-winning, you know, President's Award or some other award that had been won and then looking at the results. 
the results were judged on the client outcome and also the financial impact, obviously. And not things like, did everyone like the guy? Or was she really nice? Or do we, you know, it's, uh, those things usually correlate, but it's not what the variable was. And it's interesting, the very first thing that happens in these really phenomenal outcomes is that you can bet if someone just pauses and takes the time and says, I've got to think one more time, what does my target market, what is my persona, what is the human beings that I'm trying to serve, what is the deep meaning and the most important metrics to them today? Like, I, th I think I know it. I've known it for the last 10 years, but the ones that just, when there's a new initiative, when there's a new priority, when there's a new project, a new prospect, something next, when they just pause and say, wait a minute, I've got to rethink this. And, and it reminds me of the research that I just heard this morning uh, on a different podcast where there's the psychologists say, if someone sits down as a young person and they're just starting out college, and they take one hour to think about what they want to do in the future in work life. They don't even have to come to an answer, but they are, they're 30% more likely to actually graduate and finish college. So just, just taking a moment to envision and to peer over into the future at how you can benefit other people in the world creates a huge difference. In my states, really, it's really interesting what the specific finding was, and, and it was ironically, paradoxically, maybe surprisingly, if you think about the one, you know, your, your most ideal prospect, your most ideal customer, and it's a person and it's specific, and you're trying to dig into the meaning and the metrics of that person's mind, stuff they don't even know about, really, or think about that often, that, then that creates a prediction that you will impact far more people. Where the people that try to affect everyone and just charge ahead, impacting the inverse, fewer people, maybe one person. So that, that's an inch. That's the first thing that I've noticed. Does that make sense to you? Powerful. No, I think that's super powerful, Mark. I think the key element is also like be, be intentional and be bold. Um, you know, it's interesting. And I know we were talking a little about this before we jumped into the dialogue. You know, I, I set out years ago, I just, I, I love sales. I, I am a student of selling and leadership, and I'm always just trying to sop up and voraciously consume everything I can on those topics. You know, I'm always listening to an audio book of this leader or famous coach. And, you know, maybe I've got my Kindle open of, of, of another one and just taking notes. And, um, but I think the key for me was I, I wanted to be a thought leader in sales, but there was, you know, you had to map out like, okay, what's the, what are the different mediums that would matter where, you know, I went out and I created a blog and I got on some of these social platforms, even though, you know, like I said, my teenager probably knows more about some of these things than I do. I just, I had to figure out, okay, where's that audience, right? Um, and then how can I learn and get different perspectives and be very, you know, uh, intentional about compiling different perspectives that I'm following or that I'm engaging in. And it was interesting because I, you know, I believe you can control the quality of your content and creation, um, the mediums that you pick, like, you know, I've got a blog, I started doing video and not, it's going to be a very personal approach to everybody, right? Because I was talking to uh, someone earlier this week as well, and I'm trying to kind of help them launch a brand and, um, you know, you're going to pick what you want to. It's like diversified stock portfolios. You look at, here's the, <clears throat> here's the array. 
If I invest in a litany of stocks and I keep my money in there over time, statistically, you're guaranteed to make money as opposed to if you just bet on one stock and you yank your money out the second it starts to drop. So I think the key is to bet big, look at a, 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 a you know, kind of create a mechanism for yourself. And, um, you know, over time, that's where it really started to hum. Years ago, I was, you know, I'd send notes to uh, folks that were very prominent in the sales arena, like Jeffrey Gittimer, Jeb Blunt. And I would ask to be on their podcast. I'd say, look, this is my following. I've written a couple of books. And lo and behold, they interviewed me. And uh, there was a tide that turned a few years back. I never had to ask to be on a podcast again because I started to be on so many. I had different content that was out there and it became more of a known entity. There was a, a shift that happened in my brand. And I'm very fortunate for that. I, it's kind of a blink and you miss it thing, but you look back and you see some of those serendipitous moments that led you there. And the biggest decisions that I made were one, writing the book because it differentiated my brand. It didn't matter that I didn't sell enough to retire. It mattered that it was out there and it was like some thought leadership. It also mattered that I created diversified content, you know, that I had a blog, um, that I was going out and following followers of people that were doing what I wanted to do, and then sharing ideas with them. Those became valued, trusted contacts. And then I bet big on uh, people and process. That uh, Those are the things that really led me to where I am. But, um, you know, sometimes when you're stuck in that pivot moment, um, that's where the real challenge is, because you see an outcome that you want to get to. So figuring out the process is very challenging and you don't want to make it an emotional decision. Yeah. You know, and I think I think it's really wise what you say to, to go out there and pick the the objective or the, the vision of that future scene of what you're trying to get to. Um, if it's just a mission that's like a year or two out and you're picking a single a single objective, a single target, a single mark to hit. Um, maybe not more than three. After that, you're just you're a little too scattered. If it's three ma- more than three major things, but you know one to three major things, and then it sounds a little opportunistic to just figure out what people can get you there. But that's not what I get from you, and even our brief relationship. And I and I know that you don't mean that because of my own personal experience. What happens is when you learn to have brief conversations that get you into a meaningful relationship immediately. And when you get over the introvert tendency that so many of us have, it's, it's not easy for any of us to go talk to strangers and try to be friends very quickly. But it's a genuine, there are ways, and you know, I, I go through these things with clients on how to have an immediate approach. And other bright minds have taught me how to have a very quick conversation and get to meaning and metrics and, and, and understand the priorities and the personal about someone else and really understand who they are. And it's like, it's, it's the most joyful thing that you can do in life. I mean, Harvard's led the largest, longest longevity study of how to live happily. And they say, do that. Create relationships. Make them meaningful. Don't back off them. And, and so it's not very opportunistic. It, it just creates a great life to say, okay, well, let's just put the goal out there first so I know who to do that with. And then both might happen. The, by, the byproduct will come. It, that's about what you're saying, isn't it? It is. And, and Mark, I'd love to hear like what what you've identified as some of the most game-changing pivots that you've seen with clients. Um, and I'll say just briefly from my vantage point, like if I look back on some of these game-changing pivots in my career or those that I've been you know working with, it's where did we how did we identify where we were and keep a steady hand on the wheel? You know, often change isn't a result of some 
massive overhaul of anything. And I think a lot of times leaders are um, unfortunately very reactive um, either to the data or to their leadership breathing down their neck on something specific and, um, you know, maybe not being trained or coached in the right way mm -hmm. to uh, parlay that into success for their team. Like I exist as a leader to empower my team to win, to make sure that they know the framework and to remove legitimate barriers to success. And I call it out like that because it's not excuses. I don't want to hear excuses. Nobody wants to hear excuses. We could all make them. But the key is how do we remove those legitimate barriers to success so that the path is clear for success? And um, it's more of a straight path. It never really is, but more of a straight path. But I'd be curious from your vantage point, Mark, like what have been the most game-changing pivots that you've seen and what are any common trends? Um, because for me, it has. It's been like, how did we keep the steadiest hand on the wheel possible, but make small tweaks and pivots to process while keeping people at the core? Yeah. Well, let me let me give you two quick examples. One was a huge racing company, a global racing company. What happened is they got their teams together and we improved about a dozen things. But one of them was really obvious um, once they went through a few steps and they were locating the merchandise along an entire city because the race was many legs, many people per team, and it spanned the whole city, multiple stadiums. And you know where you put the merchandise seemed fairly random. Like we're just gonna put our brand out there and people are gonna buy shirts and shoes and things like that and tents and, and, and whatnot. And just relocating all of those along the race course doubled their merchandise sales, millions and millions of dollars. And all it took was us going through five sessions of like, look, we're gonna, we're gonna really rethink our, what our clients are thinking, like I explained earlier. Then we're gonna go to other people's sites and look at how they do it and look what doesn't work, what does work, what's boring, and so what shouldn't be boring. And we're gonna physically get dirty in, on the side of the problem. And then we're going to do what you said. We're going to find out who could help us that we don't talk to already. Yes, we already talked to our teams. Yes, we talked to our ecosystem every time that we deal with a race on. But what we ended up doing is they talked to Olympic people. They talked to Ironman people. They talked to all the big brands of racing that wasn't them. And they weren't competing directly. So I was comfortable enough to say, on this particular thing, how do you see it? And, and by, the, by the end, they double the revenue. That's really exciting and millions of dollars of revenue everyone gets excited about in business. But I'm a meaning guy. Um, I, I probably wouldn't be doing this if I wanted to get filthy rich. So, you know, it's not exactly like being a, a hotel mogul, right? So um, the reason that I do it is a couple of instances. And I'll tell you the second example is very short. And it is that be after one of my series of sessions with a client, I heard a woman who'd been on probation with HR because her project wasn't going well. And the senior VP of HR was in the room with us. And as I was cleaning up that day, I overheard a conversation behind me. And the HR person was obviously being helpful and saying, how did that go? Did it help at all? And she said, I think it just changed my career. I think it just saved my job because you guys have been telling me that I needed to be more customer focused and I became that by doing the things we did and you told me that I needed to be more experienced in this type of a project so by getting in there on site with other people's examples I became experienced like in days in a month and then 
you told me that I needed to gain more support internally and external within the client base. And so reaching out in the ways that I did to broaden, almost like a crowdsourcing of the exact right people. And so, wow, just a couple of activities, I think my career got turned around. And you know, saving a job's a lot more exciting to me than even making a million in revenue, frankly. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's just, those of us that are in thought leadership get it because we feel it. Don't you think it's a personal outcome? It's personal impact that you're able to have. I I completely agree. Like the dollars and cents are great. Um, You know, I have to tell you that just like now that over the last couple of years, you know, I've been in Microsoft's health and life sciences business and to be able to use my skills in sales to even impact any outcome that uh, empowers health professionals to do their role better or to uh, reduce clinician burnout or, um, you know, increase patient engagement or empower virtual visits to be done better on our platforms. Like that's really meaningful work. Um, So it's like, you know, just being able to drive one outcome of that ilk means a lot more than some of the millions upon millions of dollars that have been driven in other deals or scenarios. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think you pick up elements from each of these that are super, super valuable. Um, I'm always informed by past experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it helps you see around corners. You know, there's things that you might have encountered in, in prior scenarios. Um, you know, I mean, you just talked about a couple of different very relevant stories that I think will inform activities that you take in the future when you face something that might even look a little similar. Um, that's often the value that we can bring um, as colleagues or as leaders or whatever it is, is to be able to speak to um, you know, past experience that might've mirrored certain elements. And then ultimately like, what do we do? Uh, but I think the key that you really hit on too, Mark, is it, it's the people element. Like who are the right people to have in the room as these decisions are being discussed? And I don't need a lot of people sitting around agreeing with me. Otherwise I'd be the only one making the decision. So bring everybody in, get the constructive feedback, um, you know, and, and keep the the people, right? The heart at, uh, of everything that you're doing, the customer or, um, you know, the people that you're leading or, or whatever that is. I mean, they have to be at the heart of it. Um, you've got to understand the why behind everybody that you're speaking to um, in order to influence change or really just to build a foundation of trust and transparency, which is the only way things happen meaningfully. Um, so I, I couldn't agree more. You hear all the time about one or two people on a buying committee or, or in a purchase group, whatever the, whatever the sales process is that you adhere to, you know, you hear something like that in B2B. And uh, it, it is somewhat bad news, but it's just reality that, to say that, hey, if you have six people that are dem- dramatically impacting a decision on which way to help their people and their clients, you're going to have to know each person's why. You just sure. are. And they're all going to be different and it's going to take a little work and a little relationship building and, and other things to get to know those people's why. And there's going to be pain too. But if you've got that relationship and you understand each other's why and you care about each other's why, you can sit in the pain together too. Um, those are the types of things. I mean, you, you want to build a relationship that, that can withstand um, you know, some of the negative encounters and experiences or you know, just pain points because they're always going to exist. Um, But I feel like if you're at the heart of what matters to each person and you're proactively seeking a win for the person that you're working with or for, you're coming from the right place. Your probability of success is much higher.
Yeah. Hey, let me let me uh, change course just a little bit and ask and ask you about your books because we just met and I haven't had a chance to enjoy those. I'm looking forward to it because I really like the goal. I actually really like that kind of a process. Yeah. So um, tell us about your first one and tell us about your newest ones that we should go find and, and get and read. And, and also, what principles of sales were you really trying to emphasize in each? And I know there's a lot, but the main ones that you that are highlights for you. No, happy to do so, Mark. I think the key that I want, would want to point out with the books, first off, I don't know how I had the audacity to write a book about sales and leadership in my 20s. I, I just <laughs> I go back and I pick myself. I actually reread and repackaged um, my first book, Birth of a Salesman. I created a special edition about five years ago, um, and I changed, I overhauled it. Um, you know, earlier I was talking about you just need to make small tweaks. This actually required an overhaul because it was, I came up, in, up from a very transactional um, environment. I was in a, you know, one call close type of sales environment. I was in some boiler room environments. And so my, my thought process was more, how do you get in and make sure to build that rapport so quickly that you can get somebody to bet on you when they don't even know you? <laughs> and over time, though, a lot of my career experience since then has been more in enterprise, B2B, B2C. Um, it's been really important for the relationship. The other big stark contrast that I would draw, Mark, is when I started out in sales, I was a lone wolf. I was an individual contributor. Um, I didn't have an extended team. So it was just me. It was me going out, drawing the, you know, doing the prospecting, making the calls, getting people on the line, closing the business. I didn't have a support team. So I was the lone wolf and I was mm -hmm. autonomous. And I thought I was good. Right. I thought I was. And I realized in hindsight, I wasn't even scratching the surface. So that's what Birth of a Salesman was about, was kind of that young, undisciplined, unpolished supernova that had all this talent, but couldn't quite make it work. Right. Um, and then fast forward to now, Salesman on Fire was my most recent book. Let me before you highlight that, I want to ask you something about that previous book. So, yes, it was transactional. Yes, we don't want to go out. We want to avoid going out and, and telling people to be transactional. But there's one little piece of that that I think is really interesting. So we work and work, whether we're in business or in sales or business development or even things like nurses. We, we all in business or in work life have to start branding relationships. And one of the things that, that it often is in common is that we have to even attract the person to have a conversation at all. It's not, you know, some of the some of the accountants and the CFOs in the world just think you just wave your magic wand and people want to buy from you, and they don't. They miss all the hardest work that happens in an enterprise, which is just having a live conversation. Now, what's interesting is right when you get there. Now that you're in B2B, we have all this other genuine and real relationship and problem solving to come. But you're still in a moment at the very, very beginning where you have to make a great first impression. You do have to get to know them very rapidly, but then keep building, make it genuine. So give us your best advice from, from that project and what you've learned. What, what do we do? Yeah, you know, it's great. I, I mean, you, you nailed it, Mark, because like, we were talking before about how past experience informs the future and like what we do today. And so there are definitely elements, you know, where you're 
your messaging, how you choose your target audience, how you reach out to them, how you try to quickly develop a rapport. You know, what's changed the most is, is having all the information at our fingertips. You know, I can subscribe to trade magazines. I'm in healthcare today. So I subscribe to Becker's and healthcare IT, and I have all this information fed to me. I can go out on social profiles and see everything that I need to know or would want to know about an executive. I can use other tools to see like management intent at that organization, or I can understand their fiscal year cycles, or I can understand what relevant stories in my company might resonate with them or that are similar to what we might seek to do with them. So with great tools comes great responsibility. I've got to show up better. But I think what the difference for me was, is once I embraced the team sport of sales and I understood like getting other people in the boat with me, um, getting different perspective, different levels of experience, that's where it really took on a, a new life. I'm a big believer in probability. And I shared this earlier. That's why I don't gamble too much anymore because I know the odds there too. But you can put the odds in your favor when you focus on the right people and the right process and you engage with the right messaging and you execute consistently over time. You know, prospecting isn't a one-off type of thing. So for me, it was understanding, okay, who are all the people that I should get in the boat with me? What are the shared experiences that they have? And then how can I, um, you know, empower that team to help me move forward? So mm -hmm. that was the biggest learning. Um, Salesman on Fire was a totally different thing. It was more based on uh, something, honestly, that we talked about earlier is just kind of where you reach that impasse or that forced pivot point. How do you react and respond? Now, my response in this story, and I won't give any spoilers, but um, it was, uh, as you can probably imagine, just, you know, hearing from me, I don't, I don't, I don't lie down. Um, so it's one of those things where I kind of went scorched earth and just um, re-examine the problem. You know, where am I being blocked? What are the issues that I'm facing? How can I gravitate toward the things that are going to have the highest probability of success, but also beget, um, you know, the most outcome, right? The most impact. So, and then the transformation that took place as well from a personal brand standpoint, um, there's two things that we're always going, that we can always be making deposits in, right? One of them is our personal brand, you know, what our reputation, what we're known for. And then the other is the outcomes that we're tangibly trying to drive. That's really what the story is all about. Hmm. That's amazing. That's great. I, I love the fact that you're not just an author out in Southern California on the beach writing books. Uh, that that have been been successful, but that you're a practitioner. You're still doing it. Yep. You're still selling to healthcare, and not everyone says yes for you just because you wrote a book. In fact, quite the contrary. I mean, I would imagine that like I, I struggle with brand, right? Because um, I was having a conversation about this the other day, Mark. Like um, you know, in one way, is I'm I'm a thought leader in sales, and I'm very well known for sales. But on the other side, like I'm proactively trying to drive executive conversations. Um, in healthcare. And it's, you can't have a selling hat on, right? And in fact, that's the whole philosophy. I mean, it's selling without selling. It's how do we create meaningful relationships? Because I've got things that I can bring to bear that are going to be valuable to you as a potential client. You've got things that uh, are attractive to me. So let's figure out ways that we can work together in ways that check win boxes for both of us. And if we can do that, Let's move forward. If we can't, let's part as friends. I think that's the key element. It's a lot of it is selling without selling. It's focusing on people and uh, process. And um, you know, you're you're not going to sell to everyone. You're not going to have a meaningful deal with everyone. But you've got to gravitate toward where um, the the doors are opening, and then you've got to do everything you can to stay in the door. Right? You've got to keep nurturing that relationship over time. Yeah. Well, and, and it might seem to many that because you have Microsoft on your badge, so to speak, that you might be able to just walk in and, and get a shot. But 
There are certain aspects of Microsoft that aren't, I mean, they can't be everything to everyone. And so there are places that you're trying to provide and really could provide that the people know that there's other competitors and, and they might like them more. And, and we may not want to take the time from Microsoft. And so that brand is both a, a blessing, but in some small moments, it's probably a curse, isn't it? The incredible thing is I learned how to do a lot of these prospecting tools before I joined Microsoft. I was at a small consultant firm using them to get meetings with executives. So I had no logo on my back and um, the, the process worked. It's again, it's a scale process, you know, quality, quantity and consistency. And you're right. I mean, it's, you know, I knew early on, you know, I had the very serendipitous good fortune of joining Microsoft the week after Satya Nadella became CEO in 2014. So um, not only have I watched the stock go from 30 bucks a share to 300, that trajectory has been nice, but um, the other component of it is watching us really transform how we meet customers. You know, we're a platform company, we're a systems integrator as opposed to, um, you know, having to be the end-all be-all. And uh, that's the beauty of how we partner now with, with customers. We show up different and it, it's working, but we also have to evangelize that message, meaning that we've got to talk to different executives who still may think that we're the Microsoft we used to be. Yeah. Uh, one other question about that role that you've been playing that, that I'd be curious about. I went to a speech one time by the, universe, by, uh, the president of a university medical system, um, and it was out here west somewhere, but the, the, she stood up and she started a speech. It was, I, it was crazy how this lined up, but I had just finished a global study on strategy, and we had discovered that the number one variable was 600 that could predict a leader success, not the worker but, or the team, but the leader success, was to engender a passion for the purpose. And so, you know, I had, I had unpacked with, with, with focus groups all over the country and even in, up in Canada and, and, and elsewhere. And so I was very, very tuned into this and, you know, just excited and had my pom-poms as a cheerleader for that idea. And she stands up in front of all this, this big crowd and says, you know, we're all healthcare professionals here today, so I'm not going to talk about purpose. We kind of all know what we're doing here. So let's talk about data. <laughs> and and uh, needless to say, she didn't work there very much longer. Um, so I'm wondering, though, if you're in it every day, you're trying to use technology to save lives, do you still get a buzz? Do you still feel that why of saving lives somehow even through the electrons and the wires and the Wi-Fi and such. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I think the, the biggest reward in all of that piece is whenever you're able to get positive feedback about the trajectory and momentum of your organization and your relationship with them, or like in my case, like what my team is doing, when I'm able to get positive feedback, like, hey, this, this is working. Um, in July is when our new fiscal year began, and we did a pretty massive sub-verticalization. You know, we um, were listening to the market. You hit on something really pivotal earlier, Mark, about looking at what the competitor is doing. We don't always show up perfectly, but we learn a lot from what's, you know, at the pulse of the customer, right? So we made a lot of pivots and showing up where they are, sub-verticalizing. Um, you know, we support payers and providers differently than we support med device and med tech organizations. And as well, we should, right? Um, but just to get feedback that that model is working, ways that we're partnering proactively, bringing people into the mix where we can look at data um, differently, uh, pick specific use cases. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Like when you're able to 
bring our platform to bear with a health organization and do predictive work on patients that are in a specific type of therapy where we know that if they drop out at X point, like their mortality rate may be this. And we're able to say, if we could do that predictive work and just better engage some of those fringe outlier folks and get that mortality rate to decrease, lives are saved. And like, just to be a tiny cog in that wheel, mm-hmm. that is that is hugely fulfilling. Um, and it's not to say like, you know, we, we talked about this earlier too. It's not to say that all the other wonderful deals that have been concocted in my career haven't been rewarding, but those I have to say are very, very fulfilling. Yeah. You know, let me give you a personal thank you actually, because uh, about two years ago, I was sitting at the, the uh, graveyard, you know, going to visit my parents, and I have a small pain in my back. Without, and, and with sparing you some of the details, I end up at 10 o'clock that night with a severe pain in my back. No one can touch me. I'm lying on the couch and telling people to get away as they try to even pat me, I hope you feel better. My wife is checking on me. She takes my temperature. It's 105, and I am whack. I am wacky. I, I am. I'm upset because I'm in pain. I'm saying I'm not going to the hospital because we have a high deductible. I, I'm saying all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, she forces my. I have five sons. They're great men. Half of them come upstairs. They force me. They they pick me up. Take me in the car. And not too much later, you know, my 15-year-old's with him, my young, spry 15-year-old, and he's watching four doctors come in and saying, sir, you're not leaving. Because I'm saying, get me out of here. Get me out. I'm just out of my mind. And, and he says, the, do- the first doctor says, hey, you're dying. We're saving your life. The next one says, you're not leaving, sir. We are trying to save you. And the other one says, you may not make it. And my 15-year-old's listening to this, going home, wondering what's happening with dad. I never felt in danger, but I was out of my mind. So for me, it's not as dramatic as it sounds. But I end up with a pick or an IV in my heart for four months because that spine infection went septic after, you know, spine infection all by itself is 26% mortality. But everyone knows because they have a family member that's had sepsis. and, And that'll get you. And it'll get you fast. And so my wife and my kids literally saved my life in the first phase. But what I learned later is one of my best friends from college had actually done a study to lower that hospital chain's sepsis mortality rate. And they did it just how you said. They did it by increasing the predictive diagnosis as people enter the ER with with technology and other means. And so it's funny, you know, my best friend from college ends up indirectly saving my life because they're better at predicting. And so thank you for what you do. I mean, it, it, it changes our life. Every day we talk about that incident, it was so crazy. It's really why I work in this field too, you know? I mean, I could have gotten, found another job after my four months horizontal. And we just said, let's, let's try to change people's lives instead like ours was. So. I think it's amazing what you do and it, it personally impacts me every single day. Super powerful, Mark. And I got I just got to say, I mean, it's, it's the smart people that do that stuff. And if I can open one door that helps them do it better than I did my small part. Yeah. Well, hey, I want to get really practical in the last few minutes, if you would. 
So I want to go back to our beginning where we said, hey, in the beginning, you were a, a person in a cube or an office trying to do whatever your job was, in your case, sales, but, but any, it could be anybody. And whatever we do, we're trying to be good at and we're trying to be better every, well, most people are trying to be better every day. A few, the minority, trying to be exceptional and extraordinary yet again next year. And we, we love to work with those people. Now, those people, all of them, but anyone who's willing to sign up should become some sort of an expert. And, and I've written a couple of books, so I, I'm with you. It's personal. We're not saying go write a book. We're saying do what you're good, good at and what your opportunity to share your ideas and, and force yourself to learn more and see more and talk to more people about it and, and share that improvement with the world and the people around you. Now that you've done that, how do you tell the world if you're in that cube? That's so powerful, Mark. Um, I was having a similar conversation earlier today, in fact. Um, and it was, you know, I was talking to somebody, they had a phenomenal idea. Uh, they gave me the reason why they were passionate about it, right? And, you know, they were looking to me for advice on just how they could, um, how they could create something around this and, and land the messaging. You know, I think you, you've, you've got to take a step back and you've got to really look like we were talking about holistically at, at the vision. Like, who's your, who's your audience? What, what, what outcomes are you trying to drive? What are you passionate about? Um, because even if you're in a job that on the surface isn't something that you love doing, it doesn't mean you can't infuse your passions into what you do. Um, as I mentioned, I mean, I landed in a role that on paper I would not be successful at, but I managed to infuse what I knew how to do and what I love doing, being an orchestrator and being a marketer and being a prospector and building a community around what I was doing. And I infused that into my role and I was wildly successful doing it and became known globally for it. Um, so I think the key element is, you know, look first at, you know, what's, what's the mission? What are you passionate about? The next piece is target audience. What relationships are you going to need that are going to be key? Um, I mean, some of those could be investors, sponsors, mm -hmm. some of those are going to be, you know, you're going to, you might have to pay your dues out of the gates, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at, you know, what are the key things that I can do? You know, I mentioned earlier, um, when I wanted to be known as a sales thought leader, I started out sending messages to a lot of people, play the numbers game and embrace the numbers game. You know, I reached out to hundreds of people that had podcasts and um, lo and behold, I was interviewed on a lot of them. And then over time, I kept being interviewed on them. And then a tide turned where I started being asked constantly to be on them. Um, and so it's, you know, you're making little investments, but you've got to have a broad portfolio. Um, you know, when I look back and I realize what mattered most in my journey, um, a lot of it, you know, I mentioned the book element, but, you know, having some of these social platforms and studying, like, where is my audience? How can I engage with my audience? Following people that are following things that um, I want to be known for, and then engaging in that way of thought leadership. I went out and I created a blog, uh, a free blog, and I started posting content there. And I had different social channels that I could share that through and starting connecting with people, connecting with people meaningfully. You know, you don't want a spray and pray approach. You want to create meaningful relationships along the way. And I think that was the key element. Um, the other key learning for me too, and this is good, it's, it's the personal approach, right? I mean, you got to figure out what you're comfortable with doing. If you're comfortable with making uh, video and putting that out there. Um, if you, you know, what, what do you, 
how can you use what you're passionate about and your superpower to help other people and to help other people win? And I think if you do enough of that and you become known for that, that's your brand. You ask them to connect you with other people that they believe you could help. That's how you kind of create this. Every bit of what I've described in our time together today, I mean, it's taken me every bit of 12 years to build. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I always had like a line of sight to exactly what it would look like, but I knew that I wanted to be a thought leader in selling. I knew that I wanted to be more successful in selling, but most of all, I knew that I wanted to teach and coach and learn uh, from people all over the world. And I've managed to fulfill that. It didn't look exactly, you know, that's the last piece. Be very open to where the journey takes you because it's not going to look like what you think or envision <laughs> that it'll look like. But it's like you said at the beginning of our call, Mark, because it's like even somebody that goes into, um, you know, maybe they're in high school and they're thinking about what they might want to do, that their probability of going to and graduating from college increases exponentially because you've got to give some intentional conscious thought to what you want to do and why you want to do it. Yeah, I think that's powerful. In fact, just at lunch today, I'm driving home to, to do this in, in my home office and I'm thinking about all that advice, like never sell, just contact and help. And, and it's, it's always a hard problem. Still today, it's a, it's a hard problem for me. Like, oh, am I gonna sell, send them a lame article? Are they gonna see another pitch for my podcast? Cause I'm really trying to help them, but they think I'm selling. And so how do you actually help them and I think what you what you said is really almost, maybe not quite a magic bullet, but it's close. If they have a particular need in their job, in their company, in their personal life, you know, it's just that investigation that modern technology allows us to do, but it's also talking to the people around them and surrounding them socially and, and, and asking, you know, what about them? Who are they? Are they great? What do they do? And finding out as much as we can. It's so powerful, But that Mark. problem, the speed bump of, okay, now how do I help them? You said, hey, look in your own passion at that point and now connect that and bring that to help something in that set of things you've discovered. And you can't go wrong because it's so genuine and it's the most powerful thing you have, not some article you just send them and say, hey, I want you to read more because I saw this, you know. It's really a great point. Well, I'm grateful for our time and I really want to thank you for spending some time talking to me. It's been, it's fun, been fun both ways. It has, uh, Mark, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, I, I learned a lot and just, you know, I think that's the, the last element, kind of the parting comment is, you know, always say yes to opportunities. Um, I love the fact that I get to connect with a lot of people as a result of some of the things that I've, you know, content that I've put out there. And it just, it, the reward is so enriching. So thank you. So true. You bet. Love it. Love it. Great to know you. This was awesome. What a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Five boys. Five boys. <laughs> I have three girls. So You do? We're, we're balancing it out. We'll stay in touch. Let's do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please share this episode with a friend that needs a breakthrough. Post this on social media and add my website. Tag my YouTube page. Or just text markspencercook.com to a friend message that link on Instagram right now. Also, make sure to subscribe on my site at markspencercook.com to stay up to date on all the latest advice on how to unstick priorities to create breakthroughs. I'm so grateful that you listened today. And remember, you have people rooting for you. They love you and want you to make your breakthrough. That includes us too. Take the first step now. 
you know what time it is. It's time to go create a breakthrough for your work in life. And we'll see you there.